0: Not here, thankfully they're still a asleep. A little
1: bit early for them, but the mosquitoes are out. And so what, what's happening now? Fighting a mosquito cloy. of cow dog. Mosquitoes don't like it. <laughs> so um we could say that the Buddha was one of the first to mention that the Dhamma is very simple. That in fact, in one of the sutras this repeated in several different sutras. We now have it down to, I think, four sutras that make this statement that he says that both formerly and now I teach only one thing. And that is Dukkha, Dukkha Naroda. That's all there is to it. Just one thing. And the Western mind Goes round and round and round and round trying to figure out what dukkha is and never get into the dukkha naroda. That's the way that we've, we've been living our whole lives to where the real teaching of the Buddha is is to see that which is unsatisfactory and how we get ourselves into a state of unsatisfied and, and uh, uh, into dukkha right then and take the effort to get out. That's the third noble truth to get out of it, and that we can get out of it with a little method. It's a very, very simple little method. It's called the Eightfold Noble Path, and most people make it into a great big deal to where, no, it's not. It's just something very simple, and it starts with the very simple thing to remember, and how many times have you had to remember things? I mean, you've gone to work and left your cell phone at home. Got to go back and get it. Or you forgot where your car keys are and while you're searching for them, you remember where you left them and then you go get them. Or that we're trying to think of the name of somebody and then we remember. So this is what the basic point about Anapanasati is that it starts with remembering that you're going to remember to do a very simple thing. And remembering is a very simple thing to do. And It doesn't matter what skills you've got developed. If you don't remember to uh, apply those skills just when you need them most, then they're of no value to you. Many different examples of that is, let us say that a uh, woodworker is doing a piece of woodwork and he's struggling with it. And while he's struggling with it, He's failing to remember that he's got just the tool he needs buried down in the bottom of the toolbox that he hasn't used for four or five years. And then he remembers that tool. I wish I had. And then he says, I do have. And he goes and gets that tool. And now his job is very easy. So this is an important quality of the dhamma. And that is is that you have to remember to practice. That's all there is to it. Very simple thing just to remember to practice and this is the number one skill to be learned this is it to remember it's something that you already know how to do but we're going to apply it in a particular way and what we mean by that is to remember to come into the present moment to remember to stop thinking about whatever we were thinking about in the past or in the future or someplace else so remember to come back to this very present moment and check things out that's the second one is to check things out the, this is what we would call noble right view is just looking at what's going on look what's going on with your own body look what's going on with your feelings look what's going on with your mind that's the big one and After we see what's going on, now we can make a change. After we do a bit of evaluation, we can make a change. and That's the the third item that we have in this little package, and that is right effort. The right effort that it takes to make a small little change means that it should be fairly easy effort. And yet most people, when they begin practicing meditation, they put way too much effort in it. They struggle. Drew, don't struggle when you're on the retreat. You're oh yeah. Struggling is optional.
0: Actually, I have a, a question about that. You said um it's a, it's a little change. So what is the um like how do you spot? Like what are you looking for that needs a little change?
1: Well, we can we can actually um, say that would be to see what's moving and bring it to a stop. See where things are going and bring it to a stop. And the uh, the number one item on that list that the Buddha gives, and this is in many many different suttas, uh the uh, the the term that's most commonly understood is uh, uh, pancha Narva, which means the five hindrances. And these five hindrances are all over the place. They're even in the Sakyatthana Sutra. They're in number 39, which, got, which has a whole long list of, five items, by the way, is a long list here, uh, of things that it feels like when you are free from the hindrances. And so this... Uh, Point then is for us to be able to pay attention to what we're doing to see if there is anything in uh, the mind or the feelings or the body or anywhere that's going to hinder us from being in a really good state. And then one's right effort is to throw out that hindrance, whatever that roadblock is, and then we can just booking on down the road. So. Um, basically, what we need to do then is to remove the roadblocks, to remove the uh, the hindrances for this present moment. And one of the main hindrances to this present moment is thinking about something in the past or something in the future or something that's not here now. And so this is a good um, uh, uh, evaluation method that you can think of. Uh, that you can use to look at what you're doing in the sense of what kind of thoughts that you just had. When you wake up, what were the thoughts that we were having within the past two seconds? Whatever those thoughts were, they were probably hindrances, but not always. Sometimes we can remember and look at the kind of thoughts that we're having and the thoughts that we're having are just marvelous. And so we can congratulate ourselves for that, too. So whatever that we're uh, thinking about, we can, in fact, now that we're woken up and actually looking at the thoughts, now we can congratulate ourselves for that, too. So this congratulations is actually what we mean by gladdening the mind. And it's also the easiest way to throw out the hindrances. Is just to stop those hindrances and have a wholesome thought instead. So, not only is the hindrances listed as the hindrances in that regard, but there are other words that the Buddha uses that could be translated as obstacles, or another whole way of looking at it is unwholesome thoughts. Now, the thoughts that you're having about this present moment are almost always. Uh wholesome thoughts. But if we were thinking about something in the past or in the future, then generally those are going to be unwholesome thoughts. Now, how do we mean by that? Well, the wholesome thoughts that we would have would be about what's happening right now, and an unwholesome thought would be trying to fix something that's broken in the past or making a plan for the future to fix something that's broken in the past. So we can reminisce about the past, and it has no uh, hindrances to it. But in fact, I use my own past as stories to help you guys cheer up right here in the present moment. And so thoughts about the past don't necessarily have to be hindering thoughts, but more than likely they are. Another thing to do when we're waking up and checking things out, we want to check out how we're feeling and how is the body, especially with breathing, to check out the breathing. And so as we're checking things out, we can actually make a change by taking a deep breath and enjoying that air, enjoying that input. And so this is actually the way of Anapanasati. That's why the word anapanasati, that just means mindfully breathing in and breathing out. But a better word rather than mindfully would be to remember to pay attention to your breathing in and remember to pay attention to your breathing out. Now, if you can remember to pay attention to your breathing in and then remember to pay attention to the out breath and then remember to pay attention to the inbreath. breath, and then remember to pay attention to the outbreath, you're beginning to develop this memory system as a skill. And so we develop that as a skill by remembering to take a long, deep breath and remembering to take a long, deep outbreath. And when we forget about the breath and the mind wanders away, Goenka would re- recommend when the mind wanders away from the breath, never mind, start again. Come back and start again. But almost all Westerners in their meditation, when their mind wanders away from the breath and then they remember and recognize that the mind has wandered away from the breath, they get really critical of themselves. Oh, no, I'm supposed to be watching the breath. Oh, no, look what I'm not doing, right. In other words, we turn Anapanasati, a little practice, a little toy to play with, into a set of rules into a set of rituals, into a set of this is how things should be. And so a better way of doing it is to wake up and see that the mind has wandered away from the breath. And then all we need to do is just to come back and say, hey, I'm back again. Here I am. No problems, no worries. That no one is judging you except you. No one in the meditation hall, Drew, knows that you've forgotten your breath but you. And so nobody's being critical of you but you. And it's time for us to stop being critical because critical thoughts are unwholesome thoughts. And what I mean by critical, I mean comparisons. Or this is good, this is better, this is best. Or in our our regard here, watching the breath is good. Therefore, forgetting and leaving the breath is bad. And so we busted ourselves because we made a mistake. Where, in fact, what we should do is congratulate ourselves for remembering. And so it's actually counterintuitive. Because it's counterintuitive, that's what makes it difficult for so many people, is because they forget that what we're practicing here is generally counterintuitive. Now, when I say counterintuitive or or intuitive, what I mean is that's how we've been doing it, that's our habit, and that we do things by habit over and over and over again, the same habits, the same thing, and so we're just behaving the same way that we used to behave. And the practice of Anapanasati is to remember To stop doing it the way that we used to do it and to do something new instead. To stop doing what was unwholesome by criticizing ourselves and start nurturing ourselves. Start congratulating ourselves and allow that congratulations and that nourishing. And so this is what we mean by gladdening the mind. This is that we can gladden the mind or brighten the mind with wholesome thoughts. Thoughts of, well, I'm really glad that I don't have to think about that problem anymore. They're generally in a retreat, by the way. It seems to go in three phases, Drew. The first two or three days, then the middle of the retreat, and then at the end of the retreat. And basically what happens is, is it takes a couple of days for students to settle in. They're thinking about how they got there and what was happening in the past and why they don't have this, that and the other thing, because it was confiscated by the retreat people. And then they get over that after a couple of days and now they can practice well. Oh, yeah. That's I when tried they to get keep the shows into uh, my...
0: deep. Pardon? I was just saying I tried to keep my week in the lead up to the retreat kind of quiet and calm so that um, mm-hmm. I didn't have too much of that baggage going in. It didn't work, but I did try. (laughs) All right, so the middle
1: of the retreat then, especially by day six, the students are generally into a really, really deep funk because there's there's no end to the retreat. They're not enjoying the retreat. They're not getting out of it what they came for in the retreat. And so day six is generally a pretty heavy duty trip. But then day seven, on that day, they begin to see light at the end of the tunnel. Oh, there's only a couple more days of this left, and I can handle this now. And so now they pick it up. But then they start thinking about what it's going to be like when they're out of the retreat. And the retreat's going to be over. And so they're now, like, especially here in Thailand, the students who are in the retreat, they start planning on... Where are they going to go after they get out of their retreat? What kind of tickets do they have to buy? What transportation are they going to go on? Where they're going to go, and that kind of thing. So I imagine in the West they do the same thing uh in that regard of what's it going to be like when I get home?
0: Oh, yeah, definitely. This is the thing that i'm uh I want to know more about, um, which is like how do I you know make sure that uh, towards the end of the retreat, I'm still just grooving in the present moment. All right.
1: Well, if you think about it, this is actually three days of being in the past, three days of suffering the present and three days of planning for the future. That's the way that most people practice their their meditation. But if you can go into the practice, knowing that in advance, then you can remember when you start into those things that you don't have to go there that you could pull yourself back out of that and be here in the present moment. Because when you're actually sitting there in the meditation hall, there is no expectations. There is no job to be done. There is nothing happening. You can just sit there and enjoy the moment. But most people don't do that because they're in their mind thinking about the past, thinking about the future, thinking about how tough this retreat is because I don't have all the entertainments that I used to have. And in fact, uh, 10,000 years ago, no one had any of the devices for entertainments that everybody has now. 10,000 years ago, even 5,000 years ago, we didn't have any televisions. We didn't have any radios. We didn't have any cell phones. We didn't have any books to read. Nothing like that. And yet humans survived quite nicely way back when without all of those entertainment gadgets. So, in fact, I can imagine that most evenings sitting around the campfire for most people was kind of like a meditation retreat. When there's nothing much to do except just look at the fire. This is what a casino of the fire meditation is all about, just sitting and watching the fire with no place to go, nothing to do, and the fire itself is entertaining. And so we can recognize that, oh, we don't need all of those external entertainments. When we're in the retreat, we can actually entertain ourselves with the data that's coming in the kind of data that we normally don't pay any attention to, like how does the air smell? What does this breath smell like? What is um, the the forest? Can I see the movement of the trees? You know, every tree is dancing, dancing in the breeze. Can I enjoy the dance that the tree is doing? Just watching it sway back and forth with no place to go, nothing to do. The tree is enjoying itself. Why can't I enjoy just watching the tree enjoy itself? And so this is the whole quality that we're looking for is coming out of discursive thoughts in the mind. Thoughts about criticism, thoughts about this is not good enough. I want something better. And start recognizing that whatever's happening right now is good enough. The reason that I'm not enjoying it is because of my own attitude. But I can change that. That you can change your attitude. You can change the kind of thoughts that you're having in the moment. If you remember that you can do that. And so right now we're dancing around four basic skills. And so let's make sure that we understand what those four basic skills are. The first one is sati, to remember. The second one is ditti, to look, to investigate, to check things out. Number three is duria, right effort, to take the effort that it takes to change it from an unwholesome state into a wholesome state. We keep doing that over and over again, and these three things run and circle around each other. They're skills that help each other. In other words, as you're able to see better, the amount of effort that it takes to change it improves. As you're improving your effort, your sati improves. And these things run and circle in, in the sense of gaining momentum. And as we do this, we begin to literally talk ourselves into feeling good. Everything is all right. Everything is fine. And then we begin to see that, hey, I've been carrying around so much agitation and worry. that's actually gotten stored in the body in in what we could call anxieties and stress. And it will open up tight. And so here, when we are looking at the body, we're going to be looking at the body with the intention of using the breath to help relax the body. That we, in fact, look around the body and find what tensions there are. If there's any tensions in the neck, then it's okay to give yourself a little neck massage. And, and you can do that either with your hand or with your mind so that we can re- relax that tension and let the body become very comfortable, very relaxed. So, relaxing the body will help relax the feelings, relaxing the mind will also help relax the feelings. So basically, what we can say is is that Anapanasati, in the beginning, is like a pincer movement. And what we're going to do is we're going to take the the mind and the body and position them around the feelings so that they can attack those bad feelings in unison. Just like a pair of pliers, that you can crack a peanut with a... um, or, or uh, a nut with a nutcracker because the nutcracker's got two sides to it. That if you just push on a peanut with nothing on the other side of it, the peanut's just going to keep going. You have to put a backstop and then put pressure on it like this. So this is how we're using the mind and, and the body together. But also we have to learn to that we can work with the body only when we're working with the mind. An example of that means is that if you cannot remember to take a deep, long breath and do not think about a long, deep breath, then the body's not going to take a long, deep breath. So you actually learn to control your breathing by controlling the mind. We use the breathing as actually uh, an object to help control the mind. Because when we're thinking about the breathing, We're not thinking about this, that, and the other thing the way that the mind is normally just scattered all around because we're actually paying attention to and watching the breath and spending mind moments thinking about the breath. Now, when I use the word thinking, I want to make sure that we understand that there's more than one kind of thought that normally when we use the word thinking, we actually are talking about discursive thinking or a mental monologue or dialogue that we have inside the mind. But there are other ways to spend mind moments. For instance, with your eyes. You actually look at something with the eyes, and that takes a mind moment to look. Then we process that data, and that takes another mind moment or two. And then we decide what it is, and that takes another mind moment. And then we have to figure out how we feel about it, and that takes another mind moment. So we can think of each one of those as a step of thinking. But it's a different kind of thinking. And so what I'm inviting you to do, Drew, is to start recognizing that a lot of the thinking that you do is actually thinking about paying attention to sensory awareness. Start looking at the body and watching the body and using your mind to be watching the body and noticing the body. And also use some discursive thoughts in the sense of talking to yourself or giving yourself a running dialogue about what's happening in the moment. This is what they mean in the Mahasi noting method, is to start noting what's going on, but what the the Mahasi method is missing is this quality of the right effort to make a change to it. And so what Mm -hmm. we're going to be doing is not noting the unwholesome and then noting the unwholesome and then noting the unwholesome. We're going to note the unwholesome one time, change that into the wholesome, And now we're going to be noting wholesome and noting. wholesome. Don't we have
0: like an ignorant uh, view already when we do a noting? So when I'm noting something, I already have a default position that I'm actually looking at the phenomena at let's say I'm noting the body, but my subconscious like underlying position is this body is mine. That this body is forever or something like this. You know I have some some other ideas formulated already about the phenomena that I'm watching.
1: Yes, that's good that you're beginning to notice that. Okay, that that, uh, there are various layers of thought. That in fact, one of the very basic layers is what comes next after we're doing those three. And that is the Samasankapa, which is uh, translated as right intention. And it's also translated as right thought. But when we hear translated as right thought we immediately start believing that that means um right discursive thought which it can be but a better way of looking at it is a right inclination or a right tendency it just takes a a, just a nickel of a mind moment it's more like an attitude it's sort of like when a tree falls you know the at least the woodsman know which direction that tree is going to fall because he's cut it so that it leans, and if it leans in a certain direction, then when it actually falls, it's going to fall in the direction that it leans. The guys who do demolition work on on buildings, they have to make sure that that building doesn't fall on a building that they don't want to damage. They want it to fall in in a place that's safe, and so they set their charges so that it uh, breaks it apart and makes the, 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 the building lean in a certain way, and then gravity takes care of the rest once it's leaning. Well, we can think of that too, that there's kind of a gravity in in reality of things that if, we're, if our mind is leaning towards a victimhood, then the thoughts that we're going to have are going to be the thoughts of a victim. This is hard. All meditation is so much work. Well, where did that thought come from? It came from an attitude. But if we begin to work with that attitude and shore that attitude up so that the attitude is is vertical and that any tendency for it to lean is to lean straight down, because that's the way that gravity goes. And so we have to check out these leanings of the mind. And basically the leanings in would uh, the way that the mind leans would be the kind of places that we fall into like a thought of fear or a tendency of fear will then bring on the feelings of fear. A a niggle or a thought or a very quick uh, victim's attitude mixed with that fear will then cause anger. And so if we begin to see that there is a tiny little tendency that we have, that's when things are getting more subtle, that we can actually see that we're leaning in a certain way so that we can correct that and do not lean in that direction. So a way of saying it is is that the leaning or the attitude that we almost always start with is the attitude of being a victim. Why is that? Because we were born as victims. No infant stands up, walks around the room, picks up an ax, and starts. Messing up the the hospital room, that never happened. Every newborn baby is born as a victim. They have to be nurtured and taken care of. If you don't take care of the the tender infant, it will die. And so we all survived up until this time because when we were very, very young, someone took care of us. And we enjoyed that for a while. And then something happened. What happened? Mommy was no longer nurturing. Now mommy expects us to do something. It's time to go to school. But we need a mommy's little helper. So now our full-time nurturing, everything is fine. You can play with your toys and do anything you want. Now it's changed into do your one, two, threes. Do your ABCs. Do what you're told to do. And that victimhood is now reinforced. But now it's also adding the ingredient of criticism. And so as we grow up, we continue to feel like a victim and we continue to criticize ourselves to prove that we're victims. The practice of Anapanasati is to come out of our victimhood and become a winner. This is why we need uh, the Pali word for it, by the way, is shada or shrada, and it means um, confidence. I can do this. What can you do? You can remember to look at what you're doing and to make a change. Those three things over and over again, to remember to look at what you're doing and making a change. From the unwholesome to the unwholesome. When we keep doing that over and over and over and over again, over a period of time, we begin to change our attitude from meditation is difficult, or life is hard, into, hey, I can do this. This stuff is easy. That's so the a... right attitude. Question That's on this. the attitude that we had with, uh, in that talk with Damu Bitu and myself, that Robert wasn't quite following how easy it is when we've got the right attitude. Not only that, but the right attitude helps the effort completely. In the beginning, effort is effort. And it takes the right effort to come out of all of those old bad habits one at a time into a new habit. But once we have the attitude going that, hey, I can do that, now it's easy. It's easy to take that trash out. In the beginning, we didn't want to take the trash out because somehow we saw some value in it. But now that we're inspecting that garbage and recognize, yep, that's garbage, it needs to go out. And so uh, one of the ways of expressing that or uh, a little story is that that mom goes into the kitchen, she sees her a pile of garbage that's piled up, and so she calls her teenage boy and says, go take out the trash, it's your turn to take out the trash. And so he goes into the kitchen, he sees the crash, he picks it all up, and he hauls it out to the, uh, to the road like he's supposed to do. But it's a lot of work, a lot of effort. He didn't really want to do it anyway. Now, you can counter that with a different time. He comes into the kitchen all by himself. He sees all of that garbage, and he has the thought, wow, Mom will be really pleased if I go take out the garbage. And so he gets it together, he picks it up, And he takes it out to the road happily. Now, I ask you, which one of those stories was the most work, the most effort was taking the garbage out because he was told to do it or took the garbage out because he thought it was a good idea. So this is where we change our effort is by changing our attitude. And when the attitude is is that this is easy, this is simple, I can do this, there's no problem with that. Yeah, I can bring my mind into a good, wholesome state. No worries, mate. Then all we have to do is remember to do that. And then it kind of is on a roll. We automatically can see. We can automatically then take a little bit of right effort to just nudge us out of unwholesome back into the wholesome.
0: So I have a question about the middle of the retreat in in a similar vein. All right. Um, I think Marcus has a question as well, Um, but my question was, you know, you're sitting down and you're walking for a few days and because we're not used to this, like sometimes you get sore back and you're, you know, this starts to hurt and that starts to hurt. Your neck starts to hurt. Your knees might be like a little bit painful and some sits you're able to handle it and some sits you're just like, uh, and you might try and move, but regardless of how you move, it seems to not quite be right. Um. How do I get this attitude of a uh, I can handle it in that place? All right. Well, here's a question that
1: we can start with. Why are you allowing yourself, your body, to be in an unwholesome state of pain and suffering? That, in fact, the whole quality of Sukha is just exactly opposite of Dukkha. That Sukha and Dukkha are, are opposites. And the quality of Sukha is, is that there is no... Uh, fear that you feel safe and secure and comfortable. So why are you going to a retreat and putting your body in a state of being uncomfortable? The answer to that is because that's what's expected of you. And why is that expected of you? It's expected of you because the people who are running the retreat expected of of themselves without fully understanding the teaching of the Buddha. So in many sutras, it talks about go to the foot of, in fact, even in the Anapanasati Sutra, there it is, go to the foot of a tree, go to an empty hut, go to the forest, and sit. Now, the word sit in the Pali actually has to do with sitting down on a piece of furniture. And yet, it's translated out of the Pali into, I don't know who started this, I think it was I.B. Horner. To translated that into cross-legged. In fact, there is no real reason for that to be translated as cross-legged other than the fact that cross-legged is an easy, comfortable posture that Asians have been sitting in for centuries. Or actually, it's not Asian so much as it is tropical. Because, see, in the northern climates, it gets cold most of the year, and so people want to get off the floor because it's too cold we have beds off the floor. But in Asia, people sleep right on the floor with a mat. That in fact, uh, in Japan, uh, the hotels there have a great big futon because of the cold weather and that the people are supposed to lay on the floor on the hard, um, uh, uh, just piece of cloth or maybe a bamboo sort of rug that's woven and then put this big heavy, blanket this thick blanket four or five inches thick into um, a covering for themselves and the uh, the Japanese um, landlord will come in and see that you've been laying on her uh, blanket and she don't like that at all because you flatten the blanket out you make it use, no use and she's going to have to go buy a new one if you uh, sleep on it the way that you would sleep on it as if it were a futon rather than a blanket. And so this is one of the cultural points. Now, uh, a way Drew to talk about it is, is that I've got friends here in Thailand. And my best example is uh, a stepdaughter. I met her when she was about 11 years old. And every time that I've seen her sit, she sits in the full lotus posture. She's not the only one. The full lotus posture is quite common for kids who have been sitting on the floor. My daughter is nine years old. She could sit in postures I can't get into at all. There are Thai postures about sitting on the floor with your legs like that and being able to sit up straight. I never learned how to do that. And all the times that I was a monk, I would always sit in a cross-legged position because I couldn't sit in that side position. It's quite common here in Thailand. So, what I'm saying is, is that sitting in the cross legged position for Westerners is not a natural position because by the age of two or three, you were picked up off the floor and put into a high chair. And you never got back to sitting on the floor much again. And so when you're an adult and you're trying to sit on the floor, then the body's going to hurt. So, one of the things that I would recommend to you is that if you're sitting on the floor and your body begins to hurt, go sit in a chair. You don't have to sit on the floor. You don't have to rack up any 10,000 hours of sitting on the floor for the common machine to come in and hit you with pot, and then you feel good. Make sure that you're comfortable all the time because that's the part of... Um, the Duke, uh, the Dukkha. Yes, Marcus, you had your hand up for a moment.
2: This one's from a while ago. <laughs> uh, uh-huh. We're talking about noting and how noting can be um, wholesome if it's to get yourself out of the discursive uh, verbal fabrication. But I was mm-hmm. just thinking of times uh, where noting the elements has been super useful, especially if I've got bodily pain from digestion or um or uh yeah just some bodily discomfort especially to do with eating, eating food or digesting foods i just think hey what's that hey it's gas very good move on everything's fine you know because uh if there's pains in the body um if you if you don't investigate them properly then maybe you'll make up stories about what's going to happen or such and such
1: Right. But that's part of the instructions. If you follow it well, most of the students have trouble with this instruction, but the instruction that they almost always give you is look at what the body is doing. Investigate the body for these little aches and pains with the idea of seeing what's there and then bringing it back to a level of comfort in the sense that the body has a sensation. pain is not liking that body sensation. An example a while ago was is that uh, just as the call was starting, the uh, the mosquitoes had arrived, and I'd gotten four or five bites, one on the top of the ankle of the right foot, one on the top uh, uh, of, the, of the foot, and on the left, it was uh, closer to the inside of the leg. They all came at the same time. And yet I didn't bother to scratch any of it. Just noted that the pain was there. Actually, it's not pain, it's just a mosquito bite. The pain is when you don't like it. But I used it as a notification for oh, it's time to light a mosquito coil. And so that's why I showed that mosquito coil, because I knew I'd be coming back to it, because this is the whole point is, is that just because we have a sensation in the body doesn't mean that. Things are bad or terrible. It may just be a, a new piece of information that you can think of the body as actually a messenger sending you messages. And you you know that tyrants, when they get bad news, they kill the messenger. Well, that's what we do on the inside of our body anyway, is we don't like it. And we want that sensation to go away rather than listening to it because it's giving us some news, it's giving us some information. And so when we begin to see these bo- these bodily um, uh, sensations as messengers and as friends, then we can operate with that information correctly. But if we don't like that feeling, we don't like that um, sensation, then we're already in a state of dukkha. We're already in a state of not liking it. And so now... Almost absent-mindedly, people, when they get bitten by a mosquito, they'll scratch it. This is also part of the practice of Anapanasati is while you're sitting on the cushion, the body is not moving, <clears throat> but when you're walking around, pay attention to what the body is doing. When you're using your hands, pay attention to what the hands are doing. Pay attention to the hands. Normally, when we pick up an object, The way that we pick it up is because we're paying attention to the object. Now the thing to do is to start paying attention to the hands holding the object. So our focus is different. We focus on being able to see what's going on with the body. This is going to help us to relax the body. And in fact, looking for those tensions, normally what what we mean by the tensions is that uh, tension you don't like, and so you call that pain, the aches and pains of the meditation, in fact, it has to do basically with sitting in a posture that you're not used to, and the body is screaming out, hey, I don't like that posture so much, I'm not used to it, and so the right thing to do then is to go sit in a chair for a little while, and then... When the body feels good again, go back and try the sitting again. It's very, very much like uh, brand new beginners. Can you imagine that instead of taking a meditation retreat, you go to a workout retreat with dumbbells and barbells? Almost always, we need some coach to tell us to not do too much, to work too hard. And yet we have meditation teachers who are telling you, you go sitting on the floor for 8, 10, 12 hours a day, which you've never done before. And so the body is complaining because the body's not used to it. Imagine that you had to carry around a, let us say, 20-kilogram dumbbell in each hand. Very, very heavy dudes. Or let us say, uh, not a dumbbell, but let's just say a, a gallon of water. How much does a gallon of water weigh? Seven pounds. Okay, so imagine carrying around seven um, pounds in a in a plastic uh, one gallon jug all the time. Your arms are going to get really tired. Then, in fact, this coffee cup is this. How heavy? I'm asking a particular question. How heavy is this coffee cup? Drew. Anybody? Ron? About Robert. as heavy as this one.
0: <laughs> Not very heavy okay. at
1: all. Ah, the heaviness is
0: relative wait to wait how long you hold it.
1: Yes, that's right. Things get heavy when you hold it for a long time.
0: This reminds the me of that Ajahn story. Heavy. Pardon? This reminds me of that Jack Cornfield story about Ajahn Chah. He's walking with some students and then he points to a boulder and he points to a, a, a big boulder by the side of the path. And he's like, students, how heavy do you think that is? And, you know, they guess. And he, he listens to the answers, he nods and then he's like. But it's not heavy at all if you don't try and pick it up. You see, that's a particular question. Most
1: people, when they hear that question, they translate it into a question that we learned in school, and that is, How much does it, does it weigh? How much does it weigh is not the question. It's, Is this heavy? How heavy is it? Doesn't weigh anything if you don't pick it up, and it gets heavier and heavier and heavier as you carry it around. Okay, so if you don't sit down on the floor and squat on the floor at all, then it's not heavy. If you sit for a short time, it's not heavy. But if you sit and sit and sit and sit and sit, the body's gonna start complaining because the posture that you're in is getting heavy. The legs go to sleep. No circulation. There's heaviness on the the parts of the body that uh, the rest of the body is sitting on, and so the body actually gets heavy. It gets heavy on the buttocks. It gets heavy on the back. And that's why there's back pain. But there's also another way of looking at it, and that is, is that if you are sitting up straight, then the gravity is pulling you straight down. If you tend to sit aside, then the gravity is going to pull you this way, and it takes work in the back to hold you up. So if you've got back pain, all you need to do is just to straighten the back and it don't hurt anymore. So this is also ways of of doing the retreat has to do with taking care of yourself, nurturing yourself, listening to the body. Make sure that you can stay in a state of comfort. But this idea of putting the students in discomfort intentionally has a value. It has a use. But that is not a good idea to all the students in a retreat, because the value in the use is not going to be uniform That some students are going to be miserable in that retreat, and others are going to be able to say, like we're talking here, "Oh, I can see that I don't have to sit in discomfort and hate it. I can make some small adjustments so that I feel good again. It really does have. The quality of remaining comfortable and so if the body starts to have pain because you're sitting on the floor for too long then go sit in a chair go take a walk
0: yeah thanks. Was- i think i needed to hear that <laughs> mm-hmm. I think so, too,
1: (laughs) because that's not given as good instructions. In fact, what they say is, oh, we want everybody to practice correctly. Therefore, we want you to do it here. That's especially in the Goenka retreats. They've got actually times when you're supposed to be in the meditation hall at eight o'clock. You're supposed to be in the meditation hall at this hour. okay? and a lot of people, they don't want to get into the meditation hall because they're already in great pain. And just going into the meditation hall is going to be more pain. And so they start to avoid going to the meditation hall. If you are avoiding going into the meditation hall, ask yourself why. Because the whole point is is that we're supposed to be, or let us say the, the proper outcome, rather than supposed to be, the proper outcome would be that you enjoy sitting there doing nothing. But we have to be comfortable while we're doing it. If we're in a state of discomfort, that discomfort alone is dukkha. We're not satisfied when we're in a state of discomfort. Yes, Robert.
2: Um, on this topic of bodily discomfort, I've meditated on the, uh, I think, Vedana it's pronounced. Vedana, Vedana of uh, body sensations meaning the feeling tone of them. So are they pleasant, unpleasant or neutral? And when I um, try to focus specifically on um, unpleasant feeling tones, um, the rest of the body um, will feel more pleasant and the the unpleasant feeling tones will sort of uh, kind of amplify in specific locations, but the rest of the body, um, including uh, feeling tones that before I started um, uh, investigating for unpleasant feeling tones, so the other feeling tones um, that might have been um, less pleasant will actually become pleasant feeling tones and the whole body will sort of become pleasant and it'll be only the, the very unpleasant feeling tones that I'll start to see as that. And likewise, when I um, try to look for pleasant feeling tones, um, the, the rest of the body, um, including feeling tones that i would previously seen as pleasant, will become unpleasant. And then the the, the pleasant feeling tones uh, will sort of be like these more um, more subtle things that I'm that I'm looking for, and so it's this contrast thing that happens where whatever I'm looking for the general becomes the opposite.
1: Okay, there's something that we can begin to look at, and that is is that this is not the body itself. This is your attitude. That's moving. That's changing. It's your attitude. I like that that a lot. (laughs) And so you're looking for things. By the way, the word is not uh, Vedana. It's Vedana.
2: Ah, Vedana. Thank you.
1: Vedana. And the word Vedana does not mean bodily sensations. That's part of bodily sankaras. The Vedana is actually how we feel about. The bodily sensations. So if you call it pain, that calling it pain is the not liking. That's the Vedana. not. The sensation is just merely a sensation. So there's a distinction between the sensation and whether you like the sensation or not. If you don't like the sensation, then that is negative Vedana. If you like the sensation, then in fact, it's quite possible for a particular sensation. Let's not name what it is, but let us say, yeah, it's in the knee. If this student has that sensation in his knee and that student has that same sensation in his knee, but they have different feelings about the sensation. One, hates it. And he hates his meditation, and he hates sitting in that posture, and his leg just hurts so much, and he can't wait to get out of there. He's uncomfortable. The other one, a more experienced meditator, has that same sensation in his leg, and he has the thought and the attitude, hey, I can handle this. Let's look at what's going on here. Same sensation. But one has the attitude, oh, no. I'm a victim to this sensation. And the other one is the attitude of I'm a champion of this sensation. I can handle this. Let me go investigate it. And so this is what we're actually looking for in that investigation of these um, uh, sensations. That we can call them unpleasant. Because we call them unpleasant because that's how we feel about it. But as we begin to investigate those sensations, we can begin to get some insight of, hey, I don't even know exactly where that sensation is that hurts. If I look here, it moves over there. If I go over there, I have to begin to chase it around. Which means that I'm in control of it. I can begin to move that sensation around. We can do the same thing with anxiety, that when we're sitting in meditation and we feel anxiety, instead of saying, oh, no, I'm anxious. What do I do about getting rid of this anxiety? We can instead, we can remember to have wholesome thoughts about that anxiety. And then we can say things like, oh, anxiety. I've seen that before. Let me go play with that. Can I make it go and big and small? Can I make it go from the left to the right? Can I make it grow when I breathe in and shrink when I breathe out? Can I play with it and take control of it? And if we can take control of those sensations, then we're the boss. We're the master. This is the right attitude. This is the sala sann that we're starting to develop. But we can only develop that by talking ourselves into it. But, hey, I can handle this, and then we can handle it. If we talk ourselves into, oh, no, this pain is too much. Oh, this. I got to get rid of this. Oh, what can I do to stop it? Then we're the victim of it. And so correct practices is to recognize when we're a victim of our own uh, bodily sensations and say, hey, I can be the boss here. A big example would be the kid has broken his arm. He's got the right arm and it's broken. He's got, you know, a cast over it, and he's got the sling, and he's holding it there, but he still wants to play with his cell phone. He still wants to use that hand, and now his arm is hurting. Why is the arm hurt? It says, hey, man, don't move your hands. Leave things still, so I've got some knitting to do here. I've got some bone to regrow, and uh, when you're using your hand, your muscles are all over the place, keeping the, the gap in the bone open. And so that's a message for that child to stop using his hand. And so he should then be very happy when his arm hurts because he's saying, oh, the arm is telling me to stop using my hand. Let me pay attention to what the, the message is and to now my arm will heal quick. So we can um, use that. As, go ahead.
2: So if I'm not... um. If I'm not consciously um, sort of selecting an attitude to look at the sensation from, and I'm just trying to be. Hold it
1: there. If you're not, wakey, wakey, (laughs) let's get some sati. (laughs) Let's become aware of that stuff. Let's not ignore it. Then, in fact, uh, for many, many years, the psychologists were talking about conscious and subconscious. In fact, subconscious was a word that um, Freud invented. What we understand as subconscious means that we're simply not looking at it. That when we remember to look at something, it's no longer subconscious. It's right there. We can see it. And the more we look, the more we can see. So oh. that's what I mean by wake up, wake up and start paying attention to what's going on, both in the sensation itself and your attitude about the sensation. And then make a change. And the change is, I can handle this. Hey, there's nothing to it. Hey, I can look Mm -hmm. at that pain in the knee for the next 10 minutes until the meditation uh, bell rings, and then I'm okay. Or you can say, hey, the knee is hurting right now because the knee is telling me something. It doesn't matter what the teacher of this retreat has said. My knee is telling me I've got to move it because it's not got good circulation or whatever like that. Then in fact, I know personally five monks who no longer can sit because they force themselves to sit and they've harmed themselves. I don't want to give you the names of them, but some of them are famous. and They, don't, they can't sit. And when monks can't sit, with other monks they don't want to live with other monks because they feel embarrassed because they can't sit with the other monks and so they wind up going off on their own and that's detrimental for them because they need to live with other monks and so harming yourself to the point that you can't sit in the cross-legged position anymore is very very detrimental it's better to stop with the forcing yourself to it because you can damage your legs by putting them in positions, just like you can damage your leg. I can damage my right arm by with this coffee cup just by holding it, not by one day, but a week, just holding it up. Got to hold it up at eye level. And if I hold that cup up for eye level for a week, I've actually done some damage to my arm. In fact, I don't even think I could hold it up for a week. I can't hold it up for five minutes (laughs) without wanting to set it down, which is easy to do. All I have to do is just set it down. I'm not trying to prove a point anymore. So don't try to prove any points when you're in the meditation hall. Listen to the body. It's giving you messages. Some of the messages you can just look at and inspect. Other messages you need to do something to take care of yourself take care of the body so don't do things that are too heavy take it easy that's what this practice is all about is learning how to take it easy why is it that so many students go into these retreats and struggle with it making it heavy the answer is because they want something they want results they're unhappy in their lives, and they have been told that meditation will solve all my problems. And so now we demand that there's meditation, and I've got to put a lot into it to get a lot out of it. This is why there's so many failures at meditation. Many, many, many people try meditation, and then they stop doing it because they're not getting the results that they're looking for because they're, playing, they're doing it the way that they've done everything else in their life, the intuitive way, by habit. This is why we have to put sati in there to remember to take care of ourselves, to be gentle, to be easy. So take it easy, Drew. Take it easy. That's what this is all about. Um, There was an old book back in the 1970s The name of the book was The Lazy Man's Guide to Enlightenment. It was a very thin book. And on the last page, it said, you're already enlightened. Give up trying. That makes it easy. The Lazy Man's Guide to Enlightenment is you're already enlightened. Take it easy. There's nothing to attain. Attaining things is hard work. Yes, Robert.
2: Um, Sometimes I find um, these different pointers sort of confusing and I don't know when to use one and when to use the other. For example, um, you know, taking control of the mind and. um, uh, uh, Approaching life with a certain attitude or taking the attitude that I'm already enlightened, for example, and I don't need to take control of anything, and I can just relax and.
1: I didn't say you you didn't take control over anything. Relaxing is taking control.
2: Right, right.
1: Being not enlightened is, in fact, being in a state of deprivation is being the loser's position. When you take control, now there's nothing to do because you've already done the job that needed to be done. What is that? The job that needed to be done was the right effort of coming out of the unwholesome, oh, poor me, and I've got this wired. So there's no contradiction to it
2: I see I see right excellent well that clears things up i suppose i was I was sort of imagining it the way I kind of like like imagine it or like visualize it in my head is like i'm I'm like when i'm taking when I'm using the urine ready enlightened pointer or these sort of like relaxation kind of do nothingy sort of pointers like I always interpret it as I'm stopping doing and I'm like, like what like I'm stopping doing like, uh, like it's sort of a subtractive process. So I'm not, I'm not changing things. I'm just stopping uh, ass- sort of associating with them and interacting with them. And then. Yeah. The, the Well, the, the if you're the already enlightened, then what the
1: you've exactly. just done, when you're already enlightened, what you have just done is stopping your feeling of being unenlightened and needing to do something.
2: Right, right.
1: That's what needs to be changed. And once we make that change, now there's nothing to do because we just did the job that needed to be done. Now that we've done the job that needed to be done, we can relax. The bod The Buddha actually uh, talks about that: is uh, uh, that we live our life pure as a polished shell. The job that needed to be done has been done. What is the job sure. that needed to be done? Taking the unwholesome thought, the bad attitude, out of the mind. And put a wholesome thought in, and that's all the job that needs to be done. And you can do that by that thought, I've already enlightened. I'm already there. No place to go, nothing to do now. Everything is cool. Very simple process.
2: Um Damarto, let's say I sort of I don't try to take any attitude or um create any sort of identity for myself. Is that just another attitude and identity, or am I really sort of?
1: I I don't see why you're using the word identity and attitude together. In fact, if you go so far as to say that identity is an attitude, what attitude is it? The attitude of selfishness, the attitude of the loser. That, in fact, if you are a real winner, that means that you have the feeling of wealthy and you feel greatly wealthy which means now you have your joy to spread to other people and you give this stuff away because you've got it in abundance. Right? But the other attitude, which is the common attitude of, oh, I need something. I need to go get something from someone else because I don't have it myself. Okay, so that's the loser's attitude, and all we have to do is change that attitude by changing our thoughts from an unwholesome position of, oh, I need something. I need to be enlightened, and then I'll be okay, into, oh, I'm already enlightened, and I am okay. That was the only job that needed to be done, was that change of attitude. Right, right. And when you done yeah, a guess- job. Then you done the job that needed to be done. That was all that needed to be done. Now we oh, oh, oh I'm so relaxed. I don't have anything left to do.
2: <laughs> well, that, that clears things up. Thank you.
1: Yeah, it's very, very easy. This is an easy process, an easy thing to do. No place to go and nothing to do when we have the right attitude. And so this is the main job. And we use Sati, to remember, to look at this dukkha, look at the fact that I have the attitude of being a victim, and then we can throw that out and change it into the attitude of being a winner. And then we have that attitude, I'm a winner, I got it, got it wired. These are the four items that when you put those together, it brings the mind into a state of unification. That, in fact, when we're a victim, we're a crowd. I don't like this, and I don't like that. Well, this and that are part of me. And I don't like the pain in the leg. But when I'm okay with it, then I can nurture it. I can rub the knee. I can I can stretch it out. I can do all kinds of things when I'm uh, treating it as if there's no problem. But if I think that it's a problem, now I've got to work and struggle very hard. Oh, I've got to sit here until the bell rings and my leg hurts so bad. And now we're a crowd and we're a victim, a victim of the knee. So we change our attitude easy enough to do. Oh, I can handle that pain in the knee. And if that doesn't work, Then we can say, oh, the knee really does need to be changed. Never mind the rules of the meditation retreat. It's better for me to not harm my leg. Just go ahead and move it. And we do so happily. I'm taking care of my knee. And so always from the position of nurturing. That helps the mind integrate. But when we've got unwholesome thoughts in the mind, now we're a crowd. When we've got rules in the mind and we set the rules that we can't meet, and now we feel bad because we're not living up to our own standards. And so it's good when we begin to see a lot of the ritual. That in fact, almost all, Drew, of the stuff that happens in the retreat is done ritualized. They ritualize everything. How? Why do we ritualize things? So that we're all on the same page. We do a ritual so that we're all doing the same thing. And so a lot of the stuff, the bell ringing and uh, uh, the, the scheduling and the space that you're in and all has a quality of ritual. And you can come out of that ritualization. And just be here in the present moment. Never mind all of these people doing all these rituals. I'm just going to sit here and enjoy the moment. You don't have to do what you're told to do. In fact, the best thing to do is to stop telling yourself to do the things that the people told you to do when you started the retreat. Just enjoy yourself. Just hang out. That's a real retreat. Go to the retreat as if you were going to the forest or the foot of a tree or to an empty hut where there's no one there. That these retreats are supposed to be done in noble silence. And guess what? That's not really possible. We're supposed to pretend that we're there alone and that nobody else is around. Well, that's creating a bit of falsehood. The better thing to do is to recognize, hey, there's people all around me But I'm not doing anything with them, and they're not my problem. Let them do what they're going to do. I'm going to just sit here and enjoy myself. And I don't have to do it in any particular posture. I can go sit in a chair. I can stand up. I can walk out of the meditation hall right in the middle before the bell rings. But I'm going to do everything that I am doing happily, mindfully, and being in charge of my own life. To become that lion. The Buddha was known as a lion. It's time to be a lion now. Yes, Robert.
2: I think my hand's still up by mistake.
1: Oh. Okay. All right. Oh, um. So, go ahead.
2: Oh, yeah. I was just going to bring up uh, with wholesomeness, too, right? It is like, or like a wholesome. Yeah, like thought or what have you. It's very much about uh, being whole, right? Not lacking, right? There's not that tanha, that craving, that thirst. Therefore, you know, you're quenched, right?
0: It's cool. Yes, Don't exactly. Yeah. Like that's, that's what yeah. What you
1: mean by wholesome is everything yeah. is now whole. Mm-hmm. Unwholesome thoughts means that we're missing something, that we're lacking something, that something is broken. Ah, Adonidas, I'm good to see you, even though we're just about ready to finish this call. but glad to see you anyway. You're up late, because I know you're (laughs) in Chicago, so it's what, 4.30 in the morning for you.
0: That's like (laughs) five-something. I figured you were jumping off soon.
1: Oh, that's right. We just hit daylight savings time. So Mm -hmm. now it's 530. Right. Okay. Things change, even clocks. (laughs) Some (laughs) of them (laughs) dick. So we started this call with Rick, but he said his cell phone died. Battery run out. And so we've mostly been talking about Drew. So Drew, uh, Damadas Drew is about to go on a retreat. And so we've been talking about how to do a retreat happily. Because almost everyone who's done a retreat does so miserably. They take their misery in and then they stay miserable for 10 days. And then they're very happy at the end of the retreat because finally the retreat is over. <laughs> And so they get out of the retreat on Sunday all happy that the retreat is over and they're right back into their misery on Monday. But if you go in and do the retreat happily, then when the retreat ends, now you can really be happy. This is over. And look at all this fun I'm having. I've had so much joy. I've had more joy than I can stand. <laughs> <laughs> and so that's the way to do the retreat so that when you come out of the retreat now it really is a yippee kai Ka, but then the next day after that on monday after the retreat's finished you can really keep it going because you've been practicing correctly and that practicing correctly is getting the mind over and over again into a really good state that's what we're looking for getting the mind into that state of samas and kappa. Of being the lion, being the winner, being with the attitude, I can handle anything. What a knee, nothing to it. <laughs> a little knee pain, I can handle that. And I can handle it either by sitting here or I can handle that by not sitting here. My choice. But sitting here and not handling it is the way that most people handle those things, <laughs> is by not handling it well.
0: Mm-hmm. It's the OK Corral, uh, as you say.
1: Yes, it is. In fact, that's a that's a good way to end the story. The OK Corral is basically a box like this, and you can say that one side is whether you do it or you don't do it, and you have a choice. Whatever you're doing, you can either set it down, or whatever you're not doing, you can pick it up. Your choice. And now this one is whether we like it or not. And normally we do things and we stay in this quarter, we do things and we don't like it, but we can also not do the same thing and not like it. So whether we do it or not is irrelevant. The question is, how do we feel? And so we can do it and like it, or we can not do it and like it. Your choice. And in our society, it's is, is almost to the point it does not matter how you feel. Your feelings are irrelevant. The question is, do you do it or not? And we're changing that completely around. And I'm saying it doesn't even matter whether you do it or not. The question is, do you like it, whether you do it or not? And this is the, um, uh, the skill that we have to change. So that's the, uh, the, the right effort is to change that box around so that we are now making the choice of liking it rather than making the choice of doing it. So like it, like your retreat. If you don't do the retreat, like that too. But don't go to the retreat and hate the retreat. Or, or say, I will hate the retreat, and then you don't do the retreat, and now you spend that 10 days wishing that you had done the retreat, and then you still don't like it. So, whether you like it or not like it is always your choice, and whether you do the retreat or not do the retreat is your choice. So, the right way to do it, or the best, would be to take that upper uh, left hand corner and say, I'm gonna do the retreat, and I'm gonna like <laughs> it. And so the the whole point of the sati is to remember that you have that choice. You have a choice as to whether you're going to like that leg pain or not. that in fact, if it's if it's your choice to like it, you don't even call it pain anymore. You just say, "Oh, that's an interesting sensation. Yeah, if uh, like for the broken arm, oh, it's a really, really sharp, a sharp sensation. And we can start labeling as, is it sharp? Is it dull?" Is it throbbing? Is it heavy? And let's use that kind of thing rather than describe it as a pain because the word pain indicates we don't like it. But if we call it a sharp sensation, then we can say, yeah, and I can handle sharp sensations. Been there, done that. Everyone has had sharp sensations before. You survived that sharp sensation, you can survive the next sharp sensation. Just a message. So this is the whole practice of Anapanasati, is the practice of that Eightfold Noble Path that has these four basic elements, is right view, right sati, right effort, and right attitude. And we use the first three to build the fourth one. Taking that right effort, that's the one that most people are missing. So I will. I um, um, expect now. I have the leaning for, or the attitude, that you're going to do fine in that retreat. And so I don't have to say good luck because I know that your luck is good.
0: I have a <laughs> lean that it's going I'm gonna handle it too.
1: <laughs> yeah, I know that you can handle it. Thanks, <laughs> Robert. Can he handle that retreat?
2: Yeah, you got this, true. You got this.
1: Yeah, you got this. <laughs> okay, guys. Well, we've got that. So let's go ahead and finish the call unless anybody's got any further questions. Anybody got any questions? No, everybody's cool. Everybody's mm-hmm. got this. Everything is okay. So we'll leave everybody with a really... Good positive attitude. We got this. We can end it with a lion's roar. (laughs) (laughs) See you guys.